Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> so the Budapest Memorandum was Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus agreeing that it would either destroy or transfer those nuclear weapons back to Russia in exchange for a security guarantee from the United States and from Russia that their national security would be looked over, would be, would be taken care of. Um, seems to me that Russia invading Ukraine kind of violates the terms of that memorandum, right? So, so all three of these countries, rightly, and especially Ukraine right now, can say, you know, if we had kept our nuclear weapons, nobody would be invading us now. And so Ukraine looks to the West and says, you know, y'all kind of assumed responsibility for us back then. How about living up to that promise? Um, on our YouTube channel. Um, I am your political host, uh, Will Wright, and unfortunately, my co-host, Josh Bertram, can't join us as um, I, I think he's probably being hacked by the Russians currently. So um, he will be sitting this one out. Um, but this week, we are uh, blessed and honored to have Judy Twig, um, who is a professor of political science at Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, she teaches on global health, international political political economy, and Russian politics. Um, she's a senior associate with the Global Health Policy Center and Russia and Eurasia program of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, consultant for the Independent Evaluation Group of the World Bank, and the Office of Evaluation, and a whole bunch of other stuff on her CV that um, you guys can read. I'll put it in the show notes. But uh, welcome, Judy. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks for having me here, Will. Yeah, and and it seems it seems sort of fitting because of kind of the the current the current state we're in with um, Russia and Ukraine. So I'm I'm just going to kind of get into it and just ask, you know, if you can if you can maybe give us the thirty thousand foot view of um, the relationship between Russia and Ukraine. Um, you don't necessarily have to get into you know why Russia's doing what they're doing. Um, but but I, I'd love to kind of understand more sort of the, the, the history and the background between the, these two countries. Sure. So the history between the Russian and the Ukrainian people and Russia and Ukraine goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, but since you asked for the 30,000 foot view, let's start in 1991 when the Soviet Union broke up. Um, Russia and Ukraine were two of the republics that made up the Soviet Union. Um, there were 13 other ones. So in 1991, when the Soviet Union went away, we got 15 new independent countries on the map. Russia and Ukraine were two of those. Um, Russia went through, all of those countries went through a seriously hard time back in the 90s after the Soviet Union collapsed. You know, economic chaos, um, the psychological chaos of having everything you were told to believe in ripped out from under you. Uh, lots of, of political turnover in, in Russia, Ukraine, all those other countries as we went into the 1990s. Um, then Vladimir Putin became president of Russia in the year 2000. 
And in terms of timing, he was the luckiest guy in the world because he became the Russian president just about the time that oil and natural gas prices globally went through the ceiling and Russia had plenty of that to sell on world markets. So Russia had lots of money to work with as we went through the 2000s and the 2010s. Russia used a lot of that money to rebuild its military, rebuild its economy. Things did get better in Russia for the vast majority of people as we went through those decades. And as a part of that economic and military rebuilding exercise, Putin definitely wanted to put Russia back on the global stage as a great power in a major way. And one of the things that Putin has said over and over again during this time period is that, and then this is Putin talking, one of the greatest, one of the greatest geopolitical catastrophes of the 20th century was the disintegration of the Soviet Union. So it turns out he's been telling us exactly what he was thinking all along. We should have been listening to him when he told us who he was and what he wanted. Um, he wants Russia back as a great power, back as a Russian imperial power, as it turns out. He wants to reabsorb a lot of those territories that were formerly part of the Soviet Union, especially ones that have a lot of ethnic Russians or Russian speakers in them. Um, he seems oh. to have this particular thing about Ukraine. And so he's been talking <laughs> about reabsorbing Ukraine. He actually did invade Ukraine once before, back in 2014. He marched right in and annexed the Crimean Peninsula and the Black Sea, which was part of Ukraine. And he supported, um, invented um, Russian separatists in two eastern provinces of Ukraine and kind of broke those off from Ukraine. Those have been no man land territories with lots of fighting. About 14,000 people killed in the ongoing war over those separatist territories um, in the eastern part of Ukraine. About 14,000 people killed in that fighting since 2014, 2015. Wow. Now, now you... you... <laughs> One one thing I, I'm curious about. This is sort of just a, a a very tangent question. Is the way that you pronounce Vladimir Putin's name like Vlad, Vladimir? Vladimir. Vladimir. Yeah, that's the Russian pronunciation. Got it. Okay. Because because uh, I've been I've been um, listening and reading um, uh, Fiona Hill's book on, on Putin, mm -hmm. which is a really, really great read. It was actually recommended by um, Rachel Vindman uh, last week. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, you know, the, the, the person that that's reading it says his name in that way. And I feel like, I feel like such a Westerner, you know, cause I'm like Vladimir uh, uh, Putin, but I guess that makes sense. Ah. But, but you know, one of the things in the book, it, it is, it does, it does, um, um, say that Putin is quite the history buff. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I think that really kind of tacks on to what you're just saying about kind of missing the old, the old days. Can you, can you, can you go into any sort of detail on, on what you know about Putin and sort of like his affinity for history and how he's trying to, you know, change the narrative about, you know, what, what Russia is entitled to and, and, and why, like, you know, the people of Russia should rally around this cause to, to invade Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Sure. So what we know about Putin is that he had a boyhood dream of becoming a KGB, a security services agent. Um, in fact, there's this legendary story, I'm sure it's in Fiona's book, um, 
and we don't know whether it's completely true, but there's this legendary story that when he was a high school student um, living in what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg, um, he marched up to KGB headquarters and knocked on the door and asked how he could apply for a job there. And they kind of pat him on the head and said, thank you very much, Volva. Um, what was the, like a nickname for Vladimir? You know, thank you very much, Volva. Um, go off, go to college, keep yourself physically fit, get a good education, and then come back and we'll talk. And that's exactly what he did. And so he, uh, he ended up being a KGB agent who was stationed in Dresden, East Germany, when the Berlin Wall fell when the Soviet Union collapsed. So think about world politics from his perspective. In his formative years, he was trying, he, he was working in the Secret Service's national security defense of a country that disappeared right out from under him. So there's a massive inferiority complex chip on his shoulder. Um, you know, I, you know, we can all do armchair psychoanalysis of this guy, but but he clearly um, thinks that Russia has something to prove about its great power status on the world stage. Um, we're also told that he's very much a history buff. And here, I think we saw the impact of the COVID pandemic, where he spent two years um, literally in an underground bunker. Um, there, you know, there were jokes going around Russia about him being an isolated um, grandfather in a bunker, you know, that, that he was not seeing anyone. Um, you know, we, we saw pictures of the, of the long tunnel and the physical and biological security checks that people had to go through to be allowed to, to interact with him in any way. We know that even his closest uh, advisors had to go through two weeks quarantine to be allowed to meet with him. And then we've all seen as he's had these war meetings with his top advisors over the last few weeks, we've seen them sitting at either ends of these incredibly ridiculously long tables. <laughs> um, you know, those again, becoming the, the butt of jokes, both inside Russia and, and in the Western world. Um, so during this period of COVID isolation last summer, he wrote and we have reason to believe that he actually wrote it himself. He tells us that he wrote it himself, a 5,000-word essay on why Ukraine is part of Russia, why Ukraine should not exist as an independent national identity, as, as a sovereign state, uh, why the Ukrainian people should rightfully be absorbed into the Russian empire. And he made all of these historical arguments going back to the foundational times of ancient Kiev and ancient Muscovy. I'll just note that it's pretty interesting that he's reaching back into that period of history because Kiev as a civilization actually predates Muscovy or Moscow as a civilization by several hundred years. So he, he's warping history in order to serve his own arguments. Right now, he's using ethnic Russian nationalism as a tool for regaining Russian great power status and Russian imperialism. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable, where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. 
Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Hmm. Wow. Now, now um, on, on, the, on the issue of uh, sanction, so um, I, I checked um, again just this morning, um, Russia is like the most sanctioned country in the world. Um, and, uh, the, the, the website I, I, I looked at said it has 5,581 sanctions currently in place, <laughs> and which seems like a big number and I'm sure it is, but, but I, I'm curious. I'm like, well, what are, what are some of the immediate impacts you, you expect those sanctions are going to have? And, and specifically like just, you know, the, the small business owner or, you know, the, the hourly employee, like what, what, what type of effect will we see um, within kind of the walls of Russia? Yeah, these are great questions. So we're, we're in new territory with sanctions here. You know, everybody's heard of economic sanctions being put on countries that commit some kind of uh, crime on the global stage. So we have sanctions against North Korea. We have sanctions against Iran that have been in place for decades. But every country that we've ever sanctioned before has been pretty isolated from the global economy to begin with. So sanctions were just kind of doing more of the same to, you know, more, more intensely doing more of the same to those countries. This is the first time we've ever put major sanctions on a country that had been so tightly integrated into the global economy. So th- this is a new, a, a new, um, qualitatively new type of sanctions regime or sanctions environment that's in place with Russia. Now, we did put a lot of sanctions on Russia after they invaded Crimea and attacked eastern Ukraine back in 2014-2015. So we did a lot of sanctions on specific, like personal sanctions on specific Russian officials who we found to be responsible for that conflict. We put sanctions on any kind of industrial products that could be uh, have dual-use military purposes, you know, they they were, to be honest, um, meaningful, but more symbolically meaningful than anything else. Um, So we've really ramped up the sanctions environment since Russia did this ramped up invasion of Ukraine back on February 24th. And this is a big deal for a couple of reasons. One is we already said that Putin was lucky because Russia had lots of oil and gas and other natural resources that they were selling to the rest of the world. Um, We cut off a lot of that so that Russia is now unable to sell much of what it has to offer to the rest of the world. Um, We also froze their central bank assets They, in their central reserves, we estimate that more than half of their reserves were in some kind of foreign currency, meaning that, you know, they're holding their national wealth in currency denominated in dollars or euros or or some other Western currency. They can't get at any of that money now. So their national wealth reserves just got cut in half virtually overnight. That means even if somebody was willing to sell them products, they don't have the money to pay for it in a currency that would work on global markets. Um, We know that they were hoping that they could get by at least for a little while on the part of their reserves that are held in gold. But what we're understanding over the last couple of days is that nobody's willing to buy Russian gold now. 
even though technically, legally, they've been allowed to. Nobody wants to. No one wants to come under the public scrutiny that would be involved in helping Russia in that way. So there's this almost like self-sanctioning going on by a lot of um, international traders and corporations that goes beyond even the legal sanctions that have been put in place. Um, We could go farther with the sanctions. Europe is so dependent on Russian oil and natural gas that there's still some of that flowing into Europe to kind of keep them warm during the rest of the winter. But boy, are we seeing countries like Germany, who I never thought would go as far as they've gone. You know, we're seeing a lot of these Western European countries now say we are taking aggressive steps to get ourselves independent from Russian energy much, much sooner rather than later. So this is stunning. This is uh, obviously Russian, Russian oligarchs, Russian wealthy people who are being cut off from their Western bank accounts, from their Western luxury apartments and yachts and the ability to send their kids to expensive European and American schools, all of that is gone now. And we're starting to see those assets seized in, you know, Russian yachts being seized in ports around the world. Um, So the super rich, the mega rich in Russia, who presumably are the elite that might have some kind of influence over Putin's decision making, they can't possibly be happy, right? Um, And then this much sooner rather than later is going to start to trickle down into the types of goods that are available to the average Russian, you know, to the average middle-class Russian and to uh, people who aren't doing so well um, economically in Russia. They're going to find everyday goods and services more expensive. Um, You know, they're not going to be able to buy iPhones. Um, They're cut off from YouTube. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram is a huge platform in Russia where a lot of medium and small businesses advertise their services and and find customers that got cut off as of today. So through all these various channels, Russians are going to find their economic opportunities and their economic lives um, shrinking and constrained in a major way. It's going to have a big impact on the average Russian standard of living. Yeah. And I'm wondering like how... The, the soldiers that are fighting for, for Russia, I mean, like, how are they getting paid? You know, and, and how is that going to affect, affect them? I mean, I'm assuming that any sort of, you know, reserve that Russia has in their treasury is, you know, being pinched and people that aren't getting their paychecks, um, you know, while they're fighting in Ukraine are, are looking at that wondering like, okay, like, if I, if me being here, I can't even afford, you know, food for my family then why am I even here? Like, what, what, what do you think about that? So the, what a great question, Will. And it opens up a lot of the things that we're starting to hear that help us understand what exactly is happening with the Russian military and with the war effort. So a, a multi-pronged answer to that question. The first is that we've all heard the stories and seen the videos of Russian soldiers looting Ukrainian homes, Ukrainian villages, Ukrainian shops as they move into Ukrainian territory. That's because the Russian military supply lines aren't getting the food and fuel to them that they need. So it's not even a matter of paycheck. Even if these Russian soldiers had money, 
they don't have anything to buy with it because they just aren't getting access to the basic supplies. So, so we're starting to understand the shortcomings of the Russian logistical effort in this conflict. Um, we're also, I think, starting to understand the brilliance of the Ukrainian military tactic of getting in and interrupting those supply lines to try to cut off, um, you know, and, and, and try to cut off the Russian supply and, and shorten the uh the degree to which they can make military inroads into into Ukrainian territory. Um, A second prong of the answer to your question is just who these soldiers are who are fighting for the Russian military. Um, The secrecy around the planning for this Russian military operation, we now understand, was so tight that it was just Putin and a very small number of generals and other advisors around him who knew that this was going to happen, that the invasion was going to happen, and what the plan was. So not just your average soldier in the field, but even your mid-level and some of your top-level Russian military commanders weren't briefed on the plan. They didn't understand what the strategy was. They didn't know what the orders were going to be until the moment that they received them. So that meant you had a lot of these Russian kids, you know, these are young kids, right, in their late teens and early 20s, who thought they were going to Belarus or to the eastern parts or the western parts of Russia for military exercises over the last couple of months, right, going back into the latter parts of 2021. They had no clue that they were about to be ordered to go into Ukraine. And so a lot of these people, even up to the junior officer level, had no idea where they were, why they were there, what on earth was going on. And we've heard the interviews with some of those soldiers who have been captured by the Ukrainians, you know, calling, being allowed to you know, do video calls with their moms back home and say, mom, you know, I don't know where I am. I don't know what's going on. You know, I don't know when I'll be able to talk to you again. You know, th- this is not a good operational situation for the Russian armed forces. Then we have things at the top level. One of the stories that has come out in the last couple of days, and again, this isn't verified, but it's a story that's coming from several different sources. Um, We do know that Putin has ordered the house arrest of his five top FSB, the successor to the KGB, the secret service units, the foreign security service units. He's ordered the house arrest of his five top spies, basically, in Ukraine. So what's going on there? Obviously, he's, you know, Putin is highly dissatisfied with the kinds of um, the kinds of intelligence information that he was getting out of Ukraine about what would happen when the war started. Um, And a couple of things there. One is that it looks like this might be a story of corruption. And just popping up to 30,000 feet, I think at the end of the day, when historians write the tale of this war, corruption is going to be one of the through lines that runs all the way through the Russian military's failures in the early parts of this campaign. It looks like those top security officials that Russia had working in Ukraine were supposed to be spending a lot of money basically buying Russian agents in Ukraine. Right. You know, the people who would be planted on the inside, the people who were supposed to be supporting Russia as this invasion 
happened. So why did Russia think this would be a short military operation? Why did they think that Kiev would fall within the first 24 to 48 hours? You know, what, why did they think that this would be an over and done with quickly military operation? Partly because of their assumed military supremacy, but also partly because they thought they had legions of people who had been paid, set up, planted on the inside to support them. It turns out that those Russian spies working in Ukraine we're just keeping all the money. They weren't doing what they said they were going to do and, and buying off all of these uh, these Russians on the inside uh, or, or you know, these Ukrainians who ostensibly were, were going to be working with the Russians on the inside. So bad intel going all the way up to Putin because of corruption. So getting back to your initial question, what about these Russian soldiers who aren't getting paid? Um, we have reason to think that Putin was told that the soldiers who would be fighting on the ground in Ukraine wouldn't be these relatively poorly trained young conscripts. Putin thought that it was going to be all volunteer professional army troops of Russia's in Ukraine. And that's not the case. Gosh. Oh my goodness. That's That's crazy. I mean, yes, it's, this is crazy. it's like, yep. <laughs> it's it's almost like like at, at at what point do we reach like you know diminishing returns where 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 um you know you're you're just not getting what you paid for and um or if you're paying for it at all and 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 i i've always thought um i shouldn't say i always thought but since this started i i just thought there would be a there, there would come a time where there's a saturation point where the people are going to be fed up all of his crep leaders are going to be very incompetent. Um, and he's just going to find himself like alone and nobody's going to follow orders. And the whole thing is just going to come crashing down and, you know, he's going to launch a nuke or something like that. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I mean, like I, I, I just, I just don't see, I don't see how this can end in a way where he maintains his dignity. His, am I, am I, Am I wrong there? No, I, I I completely agree with you on that. You know, what what happens? What can possibly happen now? What's the end game that Putin can spin as a win? When he has trumpeted so much false anti-Ukrainian propaganda inside Russia, right? You know, the story on Russian state media now, which is completely controlled by the Kremlin now. They have, in the last couple of weeks, shut down the very few remaining sources of independent media that still existed in Russia. So now it's even illegal, punishable by up to 15 years in jail, to refer to what's happening as a war. You can't even call it that. This, you know, that everything is painted as Russia trying to save Ukraine from the fascist and the Nazis that are operating inside Ukraine, right? So the Jewish president of Ukraine, Zelensky, is a Nazi, right? So you end up with a situation where Putin's own propaganda is painting himself into a corner. How can he spin a win out of the situation with anything less than a total occupation of Ukraine or at least a regime change in Kiev to a government that's more sympathetic to Russia. So that 
leads to the kind of worry that you just spun out, Will. You know, does, does Putin find himself backed so far into a corner that he feels like he has no alternative but to resort to extreme measures? I think we're already seeing some of those extreme measures with the change in tactics where now they're just indiscriminately bombarding and sieging Ukrainian cities and having less and less regard for civilian casualties. So that's already the action of a man who finds himself backed into a corner and, and doing things that would have been unthinkable a couple of weeks ago. If he gets backed into the corner further, as this war drags on into a war of attrition, um, you know, it's really hard for the invader to win a war of attrition, right? You know, you the, the longer this goes on, the more the advantage accrues to Ukraine in in military terms. That's why yesterday, you know, we hear from the Washington Post and the Financial Times uh, stories that that they say they've confirmed that Russia has made a formal request to China for military assistance. So, I mean, we don't even want to go there in terms of what that would mean geopolitically if China were actually to say yes to a request like that. I can't imagine China saying yes to a request like that. But think about the desperation that's involved in Russia having to make what amounts to a humiliating request like that to to a country like China. So could Russia resort to the use of nuclear weapons as a desperation move. It's unthinkable, right? It's just unfathomable. And yet use of tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield in order to try to just bring this to an end and force a Ukrainian surrender. I mean, that's a scenario that we increasingly worry about, I think, with, uh, with good reason. The other part of your question is, so when do people in Russia say enough is enough? Right. You know, d- does this play out not with Putin still in charge, making increasingly unthinkable calls in order to try to get himself out of a desperate situation um, before it gets to that? Do we see Russia decide it's time for an alternative to Putin to bring this conflict to an end? So Putin has to be worried about that. Right. If you look back in Russian history, Um, Regime change in Russia tends to happen in the wake of Russian failure in what should have been short, easily winnable wars, right? So the Russo-Japanese War back in 1905 brings about the first Russian Revolution. World War I brings about the Bolshevik Revolution, right? The, The Bolshevik slogan in the Communist Revolution that created the Soviet Union back in 1917 um, was peace, land, bread, Peace was the first thing, right? Getting them out of World War I. And then the Soviet Union falls on the heels of the Soviet, the humiliating Soviet withdrawal from Afghanistan in 1989. So you you already said correctly, Putin's a student of history. Um, This is not good handwriting on the wall for him in terms of historical parallels. The problem is figuring out what the scenario is by which Putin gets overthrown. Um, so I'll let the political scientist in me talk for a little bit. Historically, regime change in autocratic societies tends to happen not because thousands and thousands of people march in the street. It tends to happen because elites get dissatisfied and overthrow one of their own, 
basically. So the marching in the street thing so far is pretty well under control in Russia because they are arresting immediately anybody who even hints at protest. So you may have seen the video that was going around social media yesterday of a young woman on Red Square in Moscow who had a friend filming her and she was holding up or had with her a sign. The sign said the words, two words on it. The two words are Nyet Voini, which is Russian for no war. Um, Nyet Voini has been the uh, sort of mantra of the anti-war protesters in Russia. So she didn't even have those words on the sign, right? The sign just said two words. And so she said to the person filming her, okay, let's see how long this takes. And as she was getting the sign out of her pocket before she could even get it held up in front of her, and it's a tiny little sign, right, about this big, before she can even get the sign held up in front of her, the guys in uniform and the big scary helmets and the batons come up, carry her away, throw her in the van. And as the camera pans out, you could see the long line of police vans stacked up next to Red Square, just waiting to take protesters away. There are people being arrested for holding up blank signs in Russia. 15,000 people have been arrested for protesting the war in Russia since the conflict started. So it's and there are still brave people in Russia going out every day into the streets to protest the war, but they are being arrested and the potential penalties to them are getting more and more severe. So if that avenue is largely cut off, what we're hoping for, obviously, is that all of those rich people who got rich because Putin was letting them be rich or helping them be rich, um, if Putin's not doing that anymore, then maybe those people become dissatisfied enough that they decide it's time for a change. Um, that's a lot of palace intrigue, right? And it's hard to predict exactly how that could play out. You know, it's a dangerous game for anybody in the elite who decides they want to go in that direction. But I, obviously that's the hope. Um, now, I, you know, in terms of what comes next, this is not a situation where Alexei Navalny, you know, the most prominent Russian opposition figure, you know, it, it, there's virtually no chance that, you know, a month from now, Navalny is out of jail and president of Russia. But that's not where this goes. Where this goes is with probably, uh, you know, uh, an equally um, sort of oligarchic, you know, autocratic figure becomes president of Russia but it's someone who doesn't want to bleed money anymore because of this war. And so it's, it's someone who may not make governance in Russia any more friendly to the Russian people or to the Western world, but who will at least stop the war. Yeah. It's, it's interesting with that. Uh, Cause my, my fear is that this is just like, it's just like a self licking ice cream cone. That's just going to keep repeating. Cause you're going to get a person you know, uh, uh, in power in Russia, the U.S. and the West will try to do another Russia reset <laughs> and, then, and then give it like a decade. And then we're going to end up in the same exact, you know, scenario that 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 we're in today. And uh, it's like it just never ends. But uh, but I, I, I do want to switch gears a little bit and, and, and talk um, a little bit about um, this this idea of 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 being a nuclear power. Um, so, um, 
from what I understand, when, when Ukraine was sort of enveloped within sort of Russia and they split, Ukraine had like the third largest nuclear, um, uh, I don't know, like stash cache um, in, in the world. And all of that went to the wayside uh, back in 1990 something. 1994. One, two, 94. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, and I was wondering if, if you can kind of talk a little bit about that. Um, maybe talk about what the, the Budapest memorandum was, how it kind of came about and, you know, what does that, what does that really pretend for, you know, nuclear proliferation kind of in the 21st century? Mm-hmm. It's a great question. So the Soviet Union, back when it was the Soviet Union, was one of the two, had one of the world's two largest nuclear arsenals, right? So the Cold War period, you know, from the end of World War II up until the late 80s, early 1990s, was characterized as a two-country competition, right? A bipolar global competition between the United States and the Soviet Union. And each of those countries, us and the Soviets, had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons pointed at one another. And the idea then was that in a counterintuitive, ironic sort of way, the possession of those nuclear arsenals, those huge nuclear arsenals, actually kept us kind of safe because of this principle called mutual assured destruction, right? The idea was that neither country would dare get into even a relatively small conflict directly with the other because of the risk that that would escalate to the use of nuclear weapons. And both countries realized that the use of nuclear weapons would mean mutual suicide. And so we were deterred, right? This is the whole idea of deterrence. We were, we were mutually deterred from even a small conflict because nobody wanted to, to run the risk of committing suicide through the use of, uh, of nuclear arms. So that's where we are as we go into the late 80s and the early 1990s when one of those two big nuclear powers, the Soviet Union, literally disintegrates from the inside and breaks up into these 15 independent countries. The biggest one of those sort of successor countries to the Soviet Union was Russia. That's where most of the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenal was located. But there were also elements of that nuclear weapons arsenal located in three other of the countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union. Ukraine, but not just Ukraine, also Kazakhstan and Belarus. So the so we did a lot in the early 1990s. Um, I, example of bipartisan collaboration in the United States. Um, Democratic Senator Sam Nunn and Republican Senator Richard Lugar um, formed something called the Nunn-Lugar Agreement, which was a pretty significant program that the United States had to go into all four of these countries, into Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus, and make sure that during all of that chaos and instability in the early 1990s in those countries, make sure that the nuclear arsenal was accounted for. You know, everybody knew where all the fissile material was. Um, it wasn't just lying around in unsecured, vulnerable uh, you know, offices, warehouses, military bases, um, and to make sure that the nuclear weapons scientists in all of those countries um, had good, well-paying, stable employment so that they weren't, you know, because those guys knew a lot, right? And, and we worried that they, if they didn't have good jobs, if, you know, if they and their families weren't secure, that they might sell their expertise to North Korea, Iran, you know, 
a terrorist group. Um, so we we did a really good job of securing that nuclear arsenal in the uh, in the early 1990s. Um, we signed a document called the Budapest Memorandum back in 1994 that got all of the countries except Russia, so got Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan to agree to give up their nuclear weapons. Uh, or you know the nuclear weapons that were located on their territory precisely because we didn't want the collapse of the Soviet Union to be a default proliferation of nuclear weapons to more countries because the fewer countries that have nuclear weapons the better right um, so the Budapest memorandum was Ukraine Kazakhstan and Belarus agreeing that it would either destroy or transfer those nuclear weapons back to Russia in exchange for a security guarantee from the United States and from Russia that their national security would be looked over, would be, would be taken care of. Um, seems to me that Russia invading Ukraine kind of violates the terms of that. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah. all three of these countries rightly, and especially Ukraine right now can say, you know, if we had kept our nuclear weapons, nobody would be invading us now. And so Ukraine looks to the West and says, you know, y'all kind of assumed responsibility for us back then. How about living up to that promise? Yeah. Now, now I know in, um, so the, the Brookings Institute, um, has a really good, um, article that they wrote actually like right after the, the first impeachment, um, of Trump and, and in their article, they, they seem to, to go to great lengths to delineate between guarantee and assurances. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the things I think that they, they mentioned was like a guarantee would mean, you know, a violation would have United States soldiers inside Ukraine and an assurance is we're just going to give you a bunch of money and like, and weapons. Is, is that, is, is, is there a difference between like an assurance and a guarantee kind of within the context of the Budapest memorandum? Well, those agreements end up being highly interpretable when the rubber hits the road, right? So everybody, you know, gets their lawyers to read into those words, what they need to have read into those words, depending on the, uh, on the situation that they find themselves in. Yeah. Mm, Hallmark of diplomacy, right? You, mm. you might think that diplomats will strive for the greatest possible clarity in documents like this so that no one can later claim a misunderstanding about what was agreed to. You'd think that, but sometimes diplomats will go for intentional vagueness just so that you can get an agreement on paper, right? You know, like like a, an agreement with vague wording that's subject to differing interpretation later on is better than no agreement at all. That's where we are. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I, I mean, and, and, and I, I echo your, your thought that Ukraine is, you know, like having like a WTF moment, you know, <laughs> like, like, like why, why did we do this? You know, and um, what's, what's to keep them from, you know, kind of taking the path down the road of, Hey, I think maybe we should reinstall. We should sort of jumpstart this nuclear program again because, you know, look what happened. And um, you know, and 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 I'm curious on on what you think 
Iran or North Korea is thinking right now. I mean, here we are trying to restart the, um, you know, the Iran uh, nuclear talks again. And um, North Korea is still just doing their thing. I mean, like, what, 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 what are they thinking? seeing all this kind of unfold? Well, I think they're looking to this to see what it tells them about Russian vulnerability, Russian stature, because some of these countries have looked to to Russia for diplomatic assistance. They're definitely, North Korea in particular, is looking to see how China comes out when when all of this is over. Um, And Ukraine... Ukraine reacquiring nuclear weapons seems like a relatively secondary concern right now. There's not the kind of scientific and military uh, foundation infrastructure in Ukraine right now for Ukraine to to become a new nuclear power. So I think when Ukraine is, is thinking about its defense, its role in alliance and alliance commitments for its defense. I think Ukraine is thinking less about becoming a new nuclear power than it is its relationship with NATO and with the European Union, right? I mean, you know, the the Ukrainian constitution has aspirations to join NATO um, in the document, right? You know, it's constitutionally enshrined in in Ukraine. Um, Ukraine would have liked NATO membership a long time ago, um, on the assumption, I think probably a correct assumption, that Russia wouldn't be doing this if Ukraine were a NATO member state. Um, you know, President Biden, all the members of the Western Alliance have been quite explicit about the willingness to defend with everything we've got, every single inch of NATO territory. Um, why wasn't Ukraine ever made a member of NATO? precisely to avoid antagonizing the Russians. Wow. Now, now I, I, I know that the Ukrainian people, I mean, I've, I, my hat's off to them for just, I don't know, just stepping up. I mean, I, I, I see these images of like this grandma, you know, in the prone position with a rifle you know, or the grandma going up to the Russian soldier and offering them like sunflower seeds, you know, and, and I, and I, and I, and I, I think to myself, like just the, 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 for the lack of a better word, like the cojones on, on those people is just, it's inspiring and, and, um, expected. I mean, when you think about the orange revolution or the Maidan revolution and, and all that, you just, you, you see a people that can come together for a common cause. Um, but, but we don't really know that much about president uh, Vladimir Zelensky. Um, so what, 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 what can you tell us about um, who he is? So imagine John Stewart became president of the United States. Right? <laughs> it's not a bad parallel. Um, so John Stewart has a political science degree from William and Mary. Um, Zelensky has a sort of government and law undergraduate degree. Um, he then became a comedian. So Zelensky was an actor and a comedian. He starred in, and he became well known through starring in a highly popular situation comedy on Ukrainian television called Servant of the People, um, where he played a high school teacher who got caught on camera um, doing a rant against the corruption and incompetence of the Ukrainian government and saying how there should be just regular people in charge of the government. 
<laughs> in this TV show, that video that one of his students took went viral on social media, and it ends up with this high school teacher becoming president of Ukraine. So he plays <laughs> this sort of accidental president of Ukraine on a TV show and then ends up being elected president of Ukraine. Um, his popularity prior to the war, um, public approval rating was somewhere in the 20s, right? You know, Ukraine had incredibly contentious politics, you know, many, many different political parties in their uh, national parliament, um, issues with corruption. Uh, you know, Ukraine has come a long way since the uh, since the Maidan revolution back in 2014, 2015, but it was still a highly fractured political environment. Um, and the war has, as you say, will, you know, united the Ukrainian people, not surprisingly, in, in an incredibly impressive show of military strength and national solidarity. And boy, has Zelensky stepped up as a brave, effective, brilliant wartime leader. Turns out that being an actor, you know, put him in the right place at the right time, right? He's needed to control the information environment. He's, he's needed to win the propaganda war. And, and he has. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's like proof that um, not all TV personalities can destroy a country. Right. <laughs> Not naming names. It's a but, contrast you know. there. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and just, just to remind, I mean, I, I understand that yours is a, a very much bipartisan show intended to bring people on uh, the two ends of the American political spectrum together. But um, so I'll just state a fact here that at Trump's impeachment trial, um, the impeachment was about basically bribing a foreign leader. That foreign leader was Ukraine Zelensky. That the, uh, the, the setup was Zelensky in a phone call was asking Trump for more Javelin anti-tank missiles, right? Those are the anti-tank missiles that are defeating the Russian military right now. So Zelensky, you know, years ago was asking for more of those, anticipating exactly this kind of Russian invasion. And Trump's response to Zelensky's request for more javelins was, I want you to do me a favor, though. And the favor was investigating Hunter Biden, um, now President Biden's son, who sat on the board of a major corporation that was doing business in Ukraine. So that perceived tit for tat was at the core of Trump's impeachment trial. Yeah, you know, and and on that in that same vein with with Trump, so there's a lot of um, I don't know, like people on the right that you know, to include Trump himself, you know, say that none of this would happen if Trump were were in office, and um, you know, to to kind of a, a avoid just my immediate disgust to that to that statement, you know, I I am curious on what you think. Um, about that, number one, you know, and, and, and would there be, or could you see any benefit in Trump being president during this moment in time, um, against, you know, uh, and, and have a voice kind of with, with, with what's going on right now. Trump was explicit in his desire to weaken or disintegrate the NATO alliance. Um, I think Putin didn't even consider making a move like this during Trump's presidency because he didn't need to. He had an ally 
in the United States in President Trump. Um, I think that calculus changed when President Biden took office uh, because President Biden made it clear that he was not a friend of Russia and would stand up to Russian aggression. So I, I think the idea that this wouldn't have happened if Trump were still president, I, I think that's actually the reverse of, of the actual logic that applies to this situation. Um, I'll also note, just thinking about Biden's presidency and, and this war, is that this is not what Biden wanted to have on his agenda, right? Biden came into the presidency wanting to focus on the three C's, um, China, which he had, I think, correctly pre-war identified as um, the United States's main geopolitical adversary, um, China, COVID, and climate climate change. Um, Biden very much wanted not to have to deal with Russia. And I'm sure Putin took this as an insult, right? That we just wanted Russia not to be a country that we really had to think about very much. Um, I think that might be part of what was driving Putin's aggression here is a logic that you can't ignore us. We are a great power that needs to be reckoned with. You can't diss us by, uh, by calling us a secondary concern. Wow, and and and, and I, I know that I know that you've done some you've done some work, um, or part of your your CV is is global health. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to kind of just shift gears um, and talk about kind of what are the broader implications about um, say global health and this war, um, and specifically maybe as it pertains to, to COVID. I know that you you wrote in, in the Atlantic Council um, some time ago, the Ukraine's healthcare system is in critical condition again. Um, I'd imagine war does it no favors. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, COVID's not over. We're still in a pandemic. Um, so so what, what, are, what are some of the things that, that uh, people should be made aware of that that maybe isn't necessarily getting as much attention um, as like bombs and airstrikes right. and what have you. Yeah. So obviously, you know, number one on our immediate list of concerns is the humanitarian crisis that's affecting the Ukrainian people, their health needs, the health needs of the millions of refugees that are continuing to pour into neighboring countries. But longer term. Uh, COVID. Um, Russia's COVID vaccination rates are about 50%. Ukraine's vaccination rate is about 35%. Um, The countries that border Ukraine that are taking in these refugees, Poland's vaccination rate, I think, is around 50 or 60%. Romania's is a little bit lower than that. You know, these are not fully vaccinated countries. Um, viruses are going to do what viruses do, right? They're going to take advantage of any opening that's provided for them to infect people. So I would imagine that sooner rather than later, we will start to hear stories of COVID cases affecting um, not just people in Ukraine, but especially the refugee communities and, and the communities that are so generously and graciously hosting those refugees. We're told that Russian soldiers are fully vaccinated against COVID, uh, but they're fully vaccinated with the Russian vaccine, Sputnik V. And we're not entirely sure that that's a great vaccine against the Omicron variant. So that's another uh, it's another thing to keep an eye on as, as we move forward. 
Um, you asked about Ukraine's healthcare system. Obviously, having your hospitals deliberately bombed by Russian missiles and artillery is a serious, again, humanitarian catastrophe, a war crime. Um, it's also a hit on Ukrainian health infrastructure. And this is, um, it's a particular crime because Ukraine's healthcare system, uh, which had been literally unreformed since Soviet days. It had been a system that up until the Maidan revolution in 2014, 2015, had just been riddled with corruption, had received very little capital investment, just did a pretty poor job of providing health services to uh, to its people. It did a lot more for lining the pockets of corrupt uh, doctors and health administrators and, and politicians than it did providing decent health care to people. But after the Maidan, um, there was a group of Ukrainian healthcare reformers who were helped a lot by um, the American government through USAID, helped a lot by the World Bank, uh, uh, by UNICEF, by the World Health Organization to start to remake their healthcare system. And so there were some big structural changes that had been made in Ukraine's healthcare to get rid of the corruption, to start putting more emphasis on primary care so that people had a good family doctor and they knew who that was and they knew where to go if they needed medical assistance. There was investment in hospitals. So Ukraine was just in the midst of a really pretty well-conceived effective process for transforming its healthcare system into a, a modern system of medical care free of corruption. And then this happens. So it, the, the hope, the hope is not only that the war is won quickly by Ukraine, but also that, that then the rebuilding, the reconstruction, um, goes hand in hand with continued momentum that already existed for that healthcare reform process so that, and you know, sure, the international community will be there with massive aid and capital investment in, in Ukraine's healthcare system to help it continue along that path of modernization and reform. Hmm. Wow. So what, what, what do you think, um, what do you think the West should require before sanctions are lifted? I mean, we, we, we started kind of at the top of our conversation talking about the over 5,000, you know, different sanctions that are placed on Russia. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, 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 what do you think is the minimum we should require? It's a great question because right now we're, you know, the, the global community, the global economic and industrial community, the global political community is so united against Russia, you know, as we said before, even to the point where there's a lot of self-sanctioning going on, you know, that companies are going beyond the required sanctions to avoid dealing with Russia and, and to isolate it from, from the international community. So reversing that um, requires a change of mindset, although I'm sure there are a lot of companies who were making a lot of money in Russia who will be happy to pick up on the first economic opportunity to, to go back in and, and start making more money. You know, uh, McDonald's, Coke, Pepsi, those countries were all making 9, 10, 11% of their annual revenues in, in Russia. This is an economic hit for these Western companies to, uh, to have to pull out. So what are the conditions under which we drop the sanctions and, and reintegrate Russia into Western economies? Well, if you're Ukraine, you want not only a cessation of armed hostility and a pullback 
of Russian troops to where they were a month ago. You also want a return of the Crimean Peninsula to Ukraine, and you want all Russian support removed for those separatists in the Donbass, in Luhansk and Donetsk, the two, uh, the parts of the two republics that have been um, not controlled by the government of Ukraine and, and allied with Russia over the last eight years. Um, that's, that's what you want if you're Ukraine, right? You want your land back um, to pre-2014 borders. Diplomatically, I think we may have to acknowledge that that's going to be a very difficult sell. And tragically, Ukraine may be forced to compromise to a pullback that includes Russian continued occupation of Crimea and some kind of no man's land type political settlement for those two separatist controlled areas in the eastern part of Ukraine. Um, Obviously, we'll want to see Russian troop deployments pulled far back from the Western Russian Western borders with Ukraine and pulled out of Belarus as well. Um, We'll also want some kind of verifiable guarantees that those troops will stay put once they're pulled back from those borders. Um, As we talked about just a few minutes ago, that's going to be a tough sell for Putin, right? How, How do you come up with an agreement that Putin can sell as a win to the elites and the people back in Russia, among whom he's hyped up all of this anti-Ukrainian war propaganda. Wow. Um, Yeah, that's, that's a, it it almost seems like an impossible (laughs) or, or it, uh, it it just seems like it's not going to happen. You know, if I were a betting man, I would say none of that. (laughs) <laughs> it's going to happen, and um, it's really sad. But um, sad yeah, so kind of to the idea that the only way this ends is with one of the two extremes: either Kiev falls and there's regime change, and you end up with a Ukrainian government that is friendly to Russia, Putin wins, or Putin is gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm sure there's a whole other range of options that you and I are not privy to <laughs> that the government's thinking about, but um, yeah, th- thank you so much. Judy. This is, this has been a really, really fascinating interview and I've, I've learned a lot. And uh, I, as I, as I asked some of my other guests that are, that are kind of plugged into Ukraine, um, what are, what are some places that people can donate to if they want to help um, or, or be involved? Uh, any, uh, any suggestions? The major organizations that, uh, Always help with refugee movements are in there now. So the uh, International Rescue Committee helps with uh, refugee movements around the world. They're a great place to donate. Um, UNICEF and the International Committee of the Red Cross are helping with displaced kids and with the medical needs of refugees. So I'd start there. Um, There are also a handful of places that you can go to donate directly to the Ukrainian war effort. Um, including, and I'd be happy to share the link with you, uh, a link set up by the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense where you can literally put in a credit card number over a secure channel and donate funds uh, directly to the armed forces that are fighting on behalf of Ukraine. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I'd I'd love to get that information out. I'll make sure that I put it in our show notes. And uh, yeah, and uh, thank you again, Judy, for for everything you uh, 
you've you've helped you've helped educate me and I'm sure my my listeners as well. So sure. thanks for your great questions, great conversation. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. Yeah, yeah, same here. And uh, yeah, until next time, we'll we'll uh, we'll see everybody next week. All right, okay. have thanks a good, good week. Bye.